most people know, oh, it would be good for me to ask. I should be asking these people what they think. But they're afraid because they feel like it's going to be hurting cats. Like if I ask them, then I got to do what they say, you know, <laughs> and or make them happy. So they avoid it. They avoid the conflict or the misalignment. Meanwhile, the misalignment's there anyway. It's not just because you're not talking about it. It's not going to go away. You are listening to the Managing Remote Teams podcast, the show taking a kind, cool-headed, and fair look at remote teams. I'm the host, Luke Shermer, and I've participated in or run distributed teams for almost a decade as a practitioner. I'm speaking with experts on leadership, strategic alignment, and remote work to help you navigate the issues you start facing after you get your working from home gear sorted. Welcome to the Managing Remote Teams podcast. My name is Luke Shermer, and I'm the author of the book, Align Remotely. And today we have a special guest. I reached out to Patty Beach, who wrote and recently released a wonderful book on alignment of all things, and really thought that she had some insight into both achieving alignment and decision-making that I thought was super useful, and I wanted to bring her to your attention. With many of these management and leadership topics, remote does make things a little different, but at the same time, it's really worth going back and revisiting the basics to figure out where your previous assumptions are still holding, and in contrast, where they need to be adjusted to work better in a remote environment. So today we will cover how to achieve psychological safety in a team with very specific actions you can take. We'll also cover things like when to drive towards a decision versus when it's worth exploring more as a group. And uh, also how to look at alignment within a company, how to identify exactly where the blockers are and how removing the blockers to alignment can actually cause exponential improvement because it's the overall effectiveness of the network that is at stake. And here's the show. Patty Beach, welcome to the Managing Remote Teams podcast. How did you get into this topic of alignment in the first place for the benefit of the listeners? I'm an executive coach and leadership development, organizational development consultant. Prior to that career, my early career, I was a geoscientist. So as a woman working in oil and gas and geoscience, often found that the way ideas were deliberated were just awkward and difficult. And I think a lot of it was because I was in a male-dominated system that had a very masculine point of view, which was more about selling and telling and top-down alignment. And while I thought it was really valuable, there were a number of incidences where we proceeded with decisions that I felt were unsound, and everybody in the room knew it was unsound, but we did it anyway. An example would be drilling a well that we all knew was going to be dry, which is a lot of time and money and contamination of the environment. And a lot of that was we have these contracts, we've got the sunk cost, et cetera. But a lot of it was really just not feeling comfortable talking about the fact that we had made a mistake at some point or that there are risk factors that we should be considering. I started thinking about it in terms of how could we codify a way of talking about things to slow things down so that everybody felt safe to say what they needed to say. So another example of this is I'm a woman, I'm in a room full of 12 engineers, 
guys. A lot of them seniors to me when I first started. It's daunting because every time you want to do anything, it's so expensive. It's a very capital intensive project. It was a very political environment. It's a lot more data driven now than when I was in it because they have fancy processors and geophysics and all that. Back when I did it, you'd have five points and extrapolation and use your magic as a geologist to figure out what's going on down there. So a lot of times in geoscience, there's one of you and a lot more engineers and moving that forward. And so it can be intimidating. You're the marginalized person because you don't necessarily have the same point of view. So that's where I got started thinking about it. When we would go to drill a well, I was much more interested in how we talked about what we're going to drill, why we're going to drill it, the, the way that we talk to each other. I almost looked at it like an anthropologist looking down, seeing little dysfunctions here and there and wanted to fix it. So that's where it got started. How did you go about trying to fix it? I ended up switching from geology to um, you know, organizational development, going to grad school around that, and did my master's thesis on understanding masculine and feminine energy as an organizational intervention. So my goal was to combine masculine and feminine thinking and decision-making and how people proceeded to do things. And while that was super interesting, it was hard for it to take hold. So I just basically took the ideas I was working on and codified it into these three principles, four steps, and five C's, so that the process basically exemplifies the best of the masculine way of thinking, of putting things on the table, of allowing people to look at it, and the feminine thinking of really integrating ideas, having more space for people to bring their feelings to the table. So once I codified it, it started to work every time. And then I thought, okay, <laughs> time to publish, get it out there so more people can use it. Yeah, one of the first things you bring up is is this whole idea of shuva. Can you explain what you mean by that? Assume, assuming you pronounce it that way. <laughs> you do. A lot of people say, what's shuva? It sounds like a religious word or something. Um, you know, or, or it sounds like a Jewish word. And I think it's very close to a Jewish word. But anyway, shuva is an acronym. And basically, it describes a universal set of needs that everybody has. And so that's the need to be seen heard, understood, valued, and appreciated. And what I like about the acronym SHUVA is in a way it is, describes love or fondness or really care, caring attention. But in the workplace, we can't use the word love anymore. After Me Too, everything got awkward and you don't want it fuzzy there. So SHUVA kind of breaks it down into specific behaviors. What I'm trying to do uh, is to help people understand that Shuva is the pathway to alignment. So if I don't see you, if you're not in the room, which happens a lot of times, decisions are made and that person's never even invited into the room, how can we have alignment? If I don't actually hear what you have to say, give you time to voice your opinion, can't reach alignment. If I don't understand what you're saying, let's say you, you said it, you were there, you I heard it, but I didn't get it, can't reach alignment. If I don't allow my judgment to be suspended long enough to incorporate in your point of view, then it's my way or the highway. That's not going to get us anywhere. So I have to actually believe that what you have to offer is going to inform my judgment. And then the last one is appreciating. So when I can send you a little message that thank you, whether we agree or disagree, being grateful for the fact that you brought your time and energy to the room, then the likelihood of alignment is a lot greater. So in companies that I'm working with or teams I'm working with, we're trying to create the Shuva culture. We use the word Shuva. We say, hey, I need a little Shuva, so that, which means slow down. I've got something to 
share with you. I want to make sure you're really listening and things like that. And just creates this positive feeling of quality attention. It's very powerful. Raising difficult topics for a group. How would Shuva help or how would you apply it to help <coughs> that to happen better? Like how would you have done it in the context of your previous job? If you could go and consult with yourself back in the day, what would you do? Hmm. <clears throat> I actually worked in with two teams. One team had a lot of Shuva and the other team didn't. There was in one team where we had Shuva, I had this like super great manager and he would listen to you. So even though I was a junior geologist, he was always really interested in my opinion. He would come and ask my opinion. And so I felt really free to share my ideas. And a lot of the ideas took hold that probably they didn't even know that they needed or wanted, but because I was able to bring them to the table and that was the experience. And then I worked with another boss who was the opposite. It was like you, you were just supposed to do your work and then not bother anybody. And they may or may not ask you for, for anything to be a part of the equation. So half the time, what would happen is things would be moving forward and you would know, well, wait a minute, like we got to slow this down because that's not like decisions were being made in a vacuum. Back then, I don't know if I might've been able to shift that, but I do know that it's when I became aware of how important this is to the high functioning of a team, like really piqued my attention. Now, when I'm coaching leaders, I teach them the Shuva acronym, like right away, very first coaching session. And I get them really thinking about uh, places where they have misalignment, because that's where oftentimes you're challenged to give Shuva. When you have alignment, it's easy. I like vanilla, you like vanilla, we're all copacetic, everything's good. But when you have misalignment, it's when it gets hard. I'll even walk them through. You're Joe and you're working with Megan. So do you see her often enough to stay in alignment? Do you share airtime with her? To what degree do you ask clarifying questions with the you? Do you understand her? If you don't get her, do you let her know you don't get her? Do you value her? Do you allow her? Do you just think, oh, she's clueless? Or do you actually think maybe she knows something I don't. Do you send appreciation? So I walk them through each of those things. And oftentimes they'll come up with something. Oftentimes it's just, I should meet with this person regularly. We should have a 15 minute check-in once a week or something. So sometimes it's simple. Other times it's not about what Megan's doing. It's about what am I doing? How am I putting my Shuva down the pipe to improve this relationship? Give Megan an opportunity to co-create with me. Usually something shifts just by going through that, just slowing it down and really thinking through each of those letters. I've seen people make breakthroughs. It's been pretty fascinating, honestly. I think this uh, this whole topic of psychological safety seems to be coming up a lot, certainly in tech circles, playing in the same area. What I like about the way that you articulate it is, is that it's also tied with specific kind of questions and behaviors and that kind of thing. Quite practical, actually. You could talk about psychological safety, but it's not that clear what you actually need to do. Mm. And with Shuva, there's a verb for every one of these, you know, like, so there's something you can do. How do you work with teams? What's an example of a good exercise that helps with the mechanics of alignment? So one of the things that I do with teams is I have a map out, like they might put their name in the center of a page, and then they would take all their team members and map them out so they're like a spoke around them if you imagine or like planets revolving around them and then i ask them to 
map out what I call their pipe works. So every relationship is like a pipe that connects that leader to every other leader. And if that pipe is clean and clear, you have a relationship where you have trust and you can make a mistake, but you can work it out with each other. Or when you ask somebody for something, you can count on it. Then you end up with a really great relationship. So that's what we'd call like a green pipe means that they have that good relationship. Sometimes you have relationships that are a little hitchy or you've had maybe you got a promotion and that person didn't or something next to you. So Sometimes there's little friction in the pipe, or maybe you've got a different idea of how to do something in the business. And then you might have what I call, that would be what I call a red pipe. Sometimes you have a blue pipe, which means just don't know that person very well. Maybe they sit next to you, but you never really talk to them Hmm. in the office or on Zoom. A lot of times you may not have ever met that person in person. And so that kind of might make it feel a little awkward. So then I challenge the leaders that I work with to really think through how do they create alignment with every single player on the team. And when everybody on the team does that, even if one relationship goes from a red pipe to a green pipe, improvement of the whole team dynamic, That's because great. everybody is really paying attention to the quality of every single relationship. So I think like the team, like times you go in, you go, well, let's build a better team and be a better team. But really it's those one-to-one relationships day to day that if any one of them are broken, it impacts the whole team. So being able to resolve those misalignments on a one-to-one level is really as important as working with the team and getting the whole team to align. Let's shift gears a little bit. One of the things that I felt was quite fascinating was the different approaches for arriving at a decision. Can you talk about the difference between a consensus and a concordance? Yeah. So a lot of people say we want to have consensus decisions, and there's a reason why that's valuable, but oftentimes they confuse consensus with concordance. So a concordance decision is the highest level of agreement. It would mean that everyone in the room that is involved in the decision is 100% on board and psyched about the decision. Let's say you had four decision makers. So in a concordance decision, those four decision makers would value that outcome of the decision If one is they hated it and five is they loved it, all four would be at a level five. So Mm -hmm. most of the times in a working environment, while it would be ideal to reach concordance, to have everybody walk out of there, yeah, let's go do this. Hell yeah. Most of the time, we just don't have enough time to deliberate things to get it to that level of agreement. So then the next level of agreement you would settle for would be consensus. Now, consensus would mean that all four people in that decision-making group could live with the decision. So they may not love the decision, may not be their preferred outcome, but the way the decision is, it's good enough that they could stand behind it. So generally speaking, that would be a desirable level of agreement because it doesn't take as long as concordance. You don't have anybody actively undermining the decision or feeling marginalized or left behind by it. Now, then we go down one more level. That would be like a democratic decision. We all vote. So if you have four people, you might have three people love it and one person hate it. And that one person, it only takes one person to sink an idea. <laughs> so uh, mm-hmm. so dem- democratic decisions are not generally as desirable as consensus decisions. Although sometimes you just have to go with it because time doesn't allow for to reach consensus every time. I'm generally shooting for consensus when I facilitate meetings. 
Well, the way you're using democratic here, you mean so it would require a concordance that everybody votes in no. a certain direction or? Yeah, democratic war. Well, democratic maybe not the right word, but I would just say majority rule. Like if we have four people, mm -hmm. if we have three people could vote yes and one person vote no, then the majority rule would go forward with the three people. However, that one person could be extremely unhappy with the decision. Yeah. Whereas in consensus, everybody can live with the decision. There's no one that just absolutely hates the decision as a part of the final decision. What do you think of Amazon's disagree and commit role? In the disagree and commit is fine. The consensus decision would say, I disagree with it. It's not my preference, but I commit. As long as I have the ability to every once in a while throw a deal in my book, right about this fist to five decision-making, which is really not mine. It's used by a lot of people, but basically a fist would be a block. If I can disagree and commit most of the time, however, if there's something that you're going to move forward on that I have the opportunity to block, then I'm more in favor of the Amazon style and where a block might be something you use like once or twice in your career, not like every time. But <clears throat> over time, what happens when you have disagree and commit is sometimes you're really shooting for efficiency and you're running into further and further misalignment where there's several people disagree and commit every time, disagree and commit. And sometimes that's practical. You move forward. It's okay. We know that not every decision is going to be loved by everyone. But if you're not really trying to seek alignment so it works for everyone and everyone's able to voice their uh, opinion, then then misalignments just stack up over time. And you also have people who have ambiguous commitment there. You're asking them to carry it out and they just don't have it in their feet. If they don't have it in their heart, they're not going to have it in their feet. It's not a bad practice, but I wouldn't want to practice it too much if there was a lot of disagreeing going on. I'd want to find out what's going on there. I find it interesting how there's so many different for lack of a better term, algorithms for this. It intuitively seems like consensus is what I gravitated to. <laughs> I think it yeah. just depends on the situation. Consensus is desirable in any group. You want to shoot for consensus as often as possible. You can reach consensus with a person who's disagreeable to it and commit when they feel like, I don't like it, but it's okay. But if they really disagree, if they wholeheartedly feel like this is a big mistake, you should rarely overlook that. You should continue to pursue what that's about. It actually had, did happen. Had 15 people involved in a decision. We deliberated for two days this decision about whether we're going to move an office from one location to another location. And there was this one guy who had been saying it wasn't a great idea because it was going to be hard if they moved from you know, Colorado to DC area to get the developers they needed and for their people to, to make those moves, et cetera. And everybody had heard him. It's not like he hadn't said it before, but we get down to the decision and to voting and everybody was voting one to five level of agreement with it. Five meaning they loved it. One meaning they hated it. Out of 15 people, 14, like all but one, were at a level four or five. And that one guy was at a level two. I mean, he was really not happy with this idea. Mm. And so we took the time to go back around to the guy and say, okay, what would it take for you to go up? Is there some change that might be made? So then he just doubles down on his case. Look, if we move them, we'll be so waylaid because we won't be able to get those developers. There's no way there are people will move. The last person we lost, it took us almost a year to replace him. I think that this is a really deadly way to go. And we re-voted again. And what we saw was 
14 people finally heard this guy you know, and wow. switched and went, oh, yeah, we get it. Now we see what you mean. Now we understand. And so it was because we pursued really understanding each other. Now, they might not have switched over to him. He might have switched more over to them or he might have had to just disagree and commit. Meanwhile, they all would have lived with the consequences had they moved the office and not been able to get the developers they needed to do the work for what they'd been working on. Anyway, yeah, that's an example of that. Like, how do you stay in healthy deliberation until all the information comes out so the best decision can be made? especially if it's a high stakes decision, like it's a big capital intensive project or it's a feature change that's going to impact a lot of, of your customers and there's consequences. What happens, unfortunately, is people just defer to the loudest, squeakiest wheel or the more senior person. They're not really allowing for all of the intelligence to emerge so the right down. decision can be made. Yeah, it gets shut down too early. I'm thinking about this whole idea of making the best decision versus making decisions quickly. How do you think about that in terms of when to drive towards a decision versus when it's worth exploring more? Deadlines definitely have consequences too. I work with a lot of startups and they got their money and they have high burn rate. So they have to run efficiently just like any other constraint. As you're moving towards a decision, you need to take that into account. If you have a super tight deadline, what I often do is recommend that a leader maybe allow for a lot of people to voice their opinion, but not necessarily get them too involved in voting, because that would allow for them to proceed, not in a vacuum, but more efficiently gather the information and data. So for every decision, there's the leader needs to be thoughtful about which goals am I really trying to serve here? Efficiency, a time commitment, a, a commitment I've made to my customer, for example, the most important variable here, or is there some other risk factor? Is there a safety issue that I need to be considering? In that case, uh, more thorough de deliberation is important. Or if I have, like I said, lots of customers, so oftentimes with automation, you can make one change and have a consequence to, you know, millions of people. Right? So you really want to be thinking about it before you have to do something like that. It really is variable. And, and uh, I tried to write about those decision points for the leaders. So they could really think about it because I don't think pursuing consensus in every decision is worthwhile. And oftentimes I think it should be consultative. It should be uh, maybe authoritative where I'm in charge. I have all the knowledge, but I'm still asking other people's opinion. So I'm not creating unintended consequences because I wasn't aware of things. One of the things that I'm working on is I'm developing a software to uh, support decision-making. So people could put a proposal in and gather feedback from stakeholders. Could be faster than if you needed to wait till the next meeting to gather everybody in a room. I think the other thing about this is that's really important is being able to be efficient in making decisions. That's why I wrote into the book this four steps and five C's process that allows for every voice to be heard and for it to be in this kind of productive glide kind of conversation so that it doesn't grind on each other and ideas can be synthesized into a better idea as a result of being put on the table in the right order. And so what I found is that sometimes you can get a lot of people in a room and make a decision pretty fast if you do it the right way. Unfortunately, most people don't. It's hurting cats and the discussion goes all over the place and it's undisciplined. Whereas in my process, you move from divergent thinking to convergent thinking over four steps. And when all of the group understands what these four steps are and they use the 
5 C's process to gather feedback, then generally speaking, the person who's in charge of the decision, it doesn't take them that long to get all the information they need to make the right decision hmm. or a better decision than they would have otherwise. Yeah, it feels very much like an efficiency versus effectiveness kind of thing, where the effectiveness being all of these other things, like the, the safety concerns or something like that. So... Going on a bit further, this distinction between who decides versus who is given a voice. Is, is it generally true that you only want one person making the decision, but lots of voices to be there? Or is it more nuanced than that? I think it is more nuanced. And I think that having one decision maker is efficient. And oftentimes in a business, you have a person who has a lot of expertise and a lifelong career and really understands all the variables more than just the general public. So for example, if I'm the an IT person and I'm trying to decide uh, whether we're going to use like Slack or Teams or some engagement platform, I may ask people what they like. And a lot of people have heard of Slack and they think it sounds cool. So great. It's good to know everybody likes Slack. Meanwhile, maybe I've got a bunch of systems that work better with Teams. And the people who I'm asking don't really know all of that information, what it would take for us to integrate this platform with other things. So as I'm making the decision, I want to give that voice to people. I want people to let me know why do they like Slack or why do they like Teams? But in the end, if I'm an expert about it, I may want to just reserve the vote to myself or maybe a small group of IT people who are part of this decision-making process or in charge held accountable for it. So I believe in delegating decisions to people and allowing them to have the autonomy to make the decision on their own. Meanwhile, I don't think they should make those decisions in a vacuum. I think they should involve people. Now, the more that you want a lot of people to do something, the more it helps to use distributed decision-making. As an example, I was just talking yesterday to a CEO of a hospital and she said, when well, past the hospital, the CMO made all the decisions. This is the chief medical officer. And would just come in and make these edicts and mandates and people would have to follow them because this is the chief medical officer. And meanwhile, she wanted to get her sort of director level leaders that are more mid-level to be more involved in decision making and also to develop their ability to make decisions. So she was going to create this council. She called an alignment council that was representative of people from multiple uh, parts of the organization. So that if let's say a new policy came down from the CMO about COVID cleaning or something, that they could all debate about it and give feedback about the consequences of that decision being the way it was, like how much time it would take, how it might deter from quality for patient care. And so the idea being that it's the people that are involved in that work day to day that understand what it takes to get the job done. Yeah. So this uh, this council, in some cases, the CMO may delegate decisions down to them and they make decisions. In other cases, the CMO may make decisions and get feedback you know, from the bottom up, which is not how it's ever been. Usually the feedback only came after some decision happened and everybody was like, oh my God, this is really not going to work. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> but what if he just ran a him before that? <laughs> Avoid all that chaos. Yeah, so she's really excited about this being a new way of creating distributed leadership and also developing the leadership skills of these people who eventually one of them might become the CMO someday. And the more involved they are in those decisions and hearing from each other, the better off they are to be a great CMO in the future. I really like that idea. I was kind of like, dang, that was awesome. <laughs> really great. So is this council, it's not at an equal level as a CMO, it's below, but advisory. Yeah. 
Yeah, so CMO would be like a C-level person, whereas this um, council would be mid-level managers. Mid-managers are great because they see the day-to-day work of their teams that report to them, but they also understand more things at the upper management level than like you could have representatives just from people that do the job every day. But in this case, it was a dual process. Let's empower these mid-level managers in decision-making more than we have in the past. So they'll get better at making decisions and help us inform decisions before we implement them. And she was also saying that you've got these millennials. They like to be involved in decisions. They don't want to have be told what to do. And they're more egalitarian in their thinking. So she thought it might be helpful to get them, get them more engaged and involved in creating the, the work environment they really wanted. Just being the pair of hands and doing the work for someone the way that they thought it should be done. And I guess another important part of this is you can make a decision and get, even create a rule, but <laughs> then how much it's actually used and implemented in practice varies. This goes back to the need for alignment in the first place. <laughs> so. Yeah. I wrote this book for leaders who have power and authority and think through, okay, do you have to hold on to all of it yourself? Or can you spread it out a little bit, get more people involved? And how would you do that in a practical way? It doesn't take forever. Yeah. It's, for some of them, it's as simple as just start asking more people before you do something. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> Like did you check with people? And they can also use this process to just delegate the decision down and get a group to make a decision. A lot of times groups make better decisions than individuals do. It just takes more time. Another thing I really liked was your insight that you articulated that to include people that are affected by a decision, even if they aren't either making the decision or informing it. It's one of those obvious things that you might miss anyway. (laughs) So I think it's so, so, so I think it's great that you called it out explicitly. Yeah, I think that it's most people know, oh, it'd be good for me to ask. I should be asking these people what they think, but they're afraid because they feel like it's going to be hurting cats. Like if I ask them, then I got to do what they say, you know, and or make them happy. So they avoid it. They avoid the conflict or the misalignment. Meanwhile, the misalignment's there anyway. It's not just because you're not talking about it. It's not going to go away. So this helps you deal with it more proactively and transparently than if you just pretended like everything's okay. <laughs> you mentioned this as somewhat of a offhand comment in the context of team building. As a leader, for you to ask the team what they see as your disruptive behaviors. <laughs> um, yeah. Where, where did that come from? That sounds like there's a story there. A lot of it actually came from my husband. He's a technology leader, worked in telecom, and he worked for Gartner, and he worked for NASA. Watching him over the years, he's very visionary. And I'd see him run up against stuff like here and there in the corporate machine, etc. Every time I would see something like that, I'd do my little armchair coaching. Like you're not supposed to coach your spouse. It did happen. Trying to help him out through his career. And that became like, oh, here's another thing people do. And here's another thing people do. Of course, sometimes I catch myself doing it. He wasn't the only person doing it, but his name's Roger. And we actually have a little joke. He's my Frank and Roger. He made in my laboratory. <laughs> Because as a coach, he's always looking for ideas for how to be a better leader. That's where those disruptors came from. When you run out too fast in front of people when they can't see you anymore, or you get attached to your idea, and then create room for other people to co-create with you. You come in, let's say, to an environment where people have been working their butt off, but it's all kind of messed up, and you start criticizing them right out of the gate, and you bring your ideas forward, and they're like not that happy about it. A lot of those disruptors also came from coaching people. I've been coaching for about 25 years and classic stuff that happens over and over again. And usually it's 
it's kind of got one of two flavors. So one flavor is the leader's too gung-ho and energetic and just pushy with their idea. They're not creating room for people to come in. And then you have the other flavor where people are uh, just swimming around and they're not clear on where they're going. And they create too much swimming room and they keep asking more and more people's opinions and then just gets more and more muddy and they're not comfortable articulating their own point of view. Uh, a lot of my coaching actually is focused on this particular challenge that leaders have, their own special flavor of <laughs> their disruptor that goes on. And I do encourage my leaders to talk to their teams, not only about what their direct reports can do better, but what they can do better to be a better leader of their direct reports. Eat a little humble pie. How does it change the team dynamic when this is done? When leaders are transparent that they have a growing edge that they need to work on, it creates permission for everyone to have that. A lot of times you have teams where people have to pretend like they're great at everything. That doesn't really work. One of the most painful things as a manager is to have someone working for you that is struggling, that won't admit they're struggling and you can't talk about it. So when you, as a leader, admit that you have your own struggles, that you have your own learning curve, it can be really inspiring to the team to be in that growth mindset. I may struggle with being disorganized, for example. We see leaders who they go through lots of conversations, never take notes, never close a decision, stay open-ended, for example. If they can just admit that this is an issue and bring it to their team as a challenge that they're wanting to overcome, then their team members can serve as their partners to help them get better at it. Remind them about the notes or help them take notes and really support them in growing through that challenge. And I see less fear in the team and more innovative when there's that frame of mind from the leader. Do you have any other little actionable team building <laughs> suggestions? This is a really simple one. I just created this new little process called a Shuva shower. And um, so when a team gets together, like on Zoom, for example, <clears throat> I would write into the chat one of the team members' names, like Luke there. And then everybody, I say, okay, I want everybody to take to think one word that describes Luke's best quality and write it in the chat, but don't uh, hit send until I say go. So they write the word in the chat, like thoughtful and wherever it is, or inspiring, put that word in there and then boom, hit. I say, ready, rock, paper, scissors, shoot. And then they hit the button. And all of a sudden you just see all of these wonderful words go up about Luke. So just, you can take a team of 12 people in six minutes and have this shuva shower of positive words about each other. And I have seen people like save the chat, it creates this like more uh, buoyant feeling. And it reminds you that, wow, look at all this talent we've got on our team. Half the time we're just feeling cranky about the last thing that didn't go. Meanwhile, we've got so much horsepower on our team. And the shuva shower not only makes the one person feel great because they feel appreciated by their team, it helps the whole team become appreciative of the, the richness of having this collective wisdom on a team. What's the best place for people to find out more? And where do you hang out online to, for, in terms of reaching Well, leadershipsmarts.com. That's my um, website. And it's a great place to go to pick up free tools and resources about alignment and to learn more about our services. And then also I just think grabbing the book off Amazon is great. A lot of people seem to be liking it because there's these really simple formulas and actionable advice there. So that's also a really great place to just pick up and 
learn more about how to be an inclusive leader. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, Patty. So just stepping back a little, I think it's fair to say that Patty has a quite useful set of frameworks for helping groups of people do things like make decisions and achieve that alignment that they want. I think the biggest takeaway for me personally, even though I have read a bit about alignment, is this whole idea of Shua, actually. I really like how it is tied to very specific verbs and it's something which can be done. It's not just a purely an idea like uh, psychological safety. And I think that's what makes it quite powerful. If you really hear the person, see the person, etc., it really makes it something which you can do in a company environment, which actually helps you really connect with them and, and achieve a better outcome for for yourself, for the group, and, and for the company as a whole. So tune in next time. We've got a wonderful guest lined up who is a change expert, in particular, helping companies change without making them feel like they are. See you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Managing Remote Teams podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts and reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn with any feedback or thoughts that you have for a future show.